In 2007, Matthew Weiner unveiled one of his most popular hit TV shows, Mad Men. Viewers were captivated by the show as they were transported back in time to the 1950s glamorous world of Madison Avenue advertisement agencies. At the heart of the series stood a man named Don Draper, a man who epitomized the American dream. John Hamm, the actor who played Draper, was a relatively unknown name at the time, but boy, does he, did he seem like he was born for the part. The audiences were just drawn into him. Whether in real life or in the TV show, it seemed like women wanted him and men wanted to be him. I mean, for crying out loud, if you all remember, Banana Republic, the clothing store, even had their own line of Mad Men suits because people wanted to dress like Don Draper. There were books written about how to have the confidence and presence of Don Draper. All because he was so alluring. He was confident, winsome, commanding, and greatly talented. And i got to be honest, like countless many's, I too was lured in and enthralled by Don Draper. I admired him. Well, after a couple seasons, though, things started to seem like they were unraveling for Don Draper. Something seemed like it was off with him. And then during one episode, it hit me. It was this one scene where he was having a fight with his young protege, a woman named Peggy. Uh, Peggy, it was her birthday, and she, for the first time, wanted to go home on time because she had big plans to celebrate her birthday. But Don insisted that she continue to stay and work late into the evening like she did almost every single night. This poor thing had worked her tail off for Don, but Don wouldn't relent. And so the two fought. And it was during that fight that I began to realize, man, Don really has no consideration for Peggy. And then I started to realize, you know, Don never really has any consideration for anyone. And then I started listening to him and thinking about how, how manipulative he was being. And I thought, you know, that's probably what makes him such a good advertisement guy. He's manipulative. And then I started hearing how arrogant he sounded, how he was only concerned about himself and his image. And that's when it hit me, like a, like a freight train, Don Draper was a narcissist. I admired a narcissist. Now, I don't feel too, too bad about it because I wasn't alone, right? Lots of people admired Don Draper. And that was actually Weiner's intention. It was his little hidden trap in the series. You see, he developed this character in the show, really, as, as a modern-day parable about the dangers and the subtleties of narcissism and how it was growing in our society. You see, he wanted us to respect and admire and want to be like Don Draper, all so that just at the right moment he could lift off the mask and reveal the monster to whom we had all fallen in love with. And in many ways, he wanted us to see a little bit of Don Draper in ourselves. It was Weiner's spot-on critique that Americans, by and large, have grown increasingly narcissistic. We've even come to admire the narcissist. And it's not just madmen, right? There's this popular boom of the narcissistic antihero in books and TV shows and movies, things like Breaking Bad and The Wolf of Wall Street, American Psycho, The Talented Mr. Ripley, House of Cards. There are all these popular series and books that center around a narcissist. We've come to admire narcissism. So during the season of Lent, 
We're going to take a little break through the lectionary, and we're going to go through a sermon series that we've titled Acceptable Sins. And what we're going to do is we're going to delve into the nuanced ways sin manifests itself into the church, including our own community. So it's not the church down the street. This is also Christ Church, y'all, okay? We're going to look at the subtle ways sin likes to seep into the church, how it becomes tolerable for us, how it can seem harmless and even appear to be desirable. And so this season and this series is an invitation, an invitation to look inwardly into our hearts that, that, we can, that we can ask God to expose those sins in our lives that we've grown complacent towards, that we've made acceptable, and that by his grace, he can then reveal those things and do the hard work of sanctification and transformation making us more and more into the image of his son, the image that is already our identity through faith and grace. So now, as the pastor leading the series, I had to do the fair thing for you all. And I had to start with my own heart. And I got to tell you, I didn't always like what I found in there. You're not going to always like what you find in yours either. But that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. We should not be satisfied with the sins in our lives. We shouldn't find them access, access, accessible, acceptable. That's the word. Thank you. <laughs> we should have a type of holy dissatisfaction with them. But I also need to give a little warning here. Because whenever we talk about sin and kind of pragmatic ways that we can kind of deal with them in our lives, there's always this risk, a risk of turning the gospel of Jesus and the good news of the free gift of his grace into some moralistic, self-help, therapeutic, works-based gospel, which is really no gospel at all. It's not good news. This is not a series about earning God's love or approval or even about improving ourselves. We already have all of God's love and approval and acceptance through Christ. It's about becoming the people who God already made us to be. It's about experiencing freedom from sin through Christ. Now, I've written a longer article on this, and, I, and it was published in The Compass this past weekend, and I really encourage you to check that out because this is very important. We do not want to replace the gospel with workspace righteousness, okay? So please, it's, it's a little bit longer. I couldn't want to add it on. I know we all have to get out of here at some point, so go read the article on your spare time. So with that, let's dive into our first accept acceptable sin, narcissism. Now, when we talk about narcissism, we need to be careful because there's this thing called the DSM-5. It's kind of like the standard or the canon for psychologists and therapists, and it categorizes narcissism as a diagnosable personality disorder. That's not what we're talking about here, okay? Uh, it, it, we're, we're talking about narcissism tendencies and behaviors and traits within us. There's a guy named Dr. Chuck DeGroat, and he has an incredible book that I have found extremely helpful called When Narcissism Comes to Church. When Narcissism Comes to Church. And he suggests viewing narcissism on a scale. So on the one hand, we have complete humility. And only one person has ever modeled that. Who is that? Fantastic. Good answer. Okay. On the other hand, we have NPD, Narcissistic Personality Disorder. And researchers tell us that it's probably only about 1%, maybe 2% of society that actually struggles or can be identified as Narcissistic Personality Disorder. Well, all of us in this room fall somewhere along that scale. Okay? All of us fall somewhere. We don't suffer from narcissistic personality disorder, perhaps, but, but we may suffer from narcissistic tendencies and actions and patterns and behaviors. 
Now, what DeGroote and other researchers are concerned about is that as they watch society, they've seen this kind of shift up the scale towards that more extreme end. Society, by and large, has become more narcissistic. Let me give you an example. In 1963, there was a study done uh, that asked Americans if they identified or thought of themselves as an important person. Well, in 1963, only about 12% of Americans thought of themselves as important. That kind of makes sense. That's about your top 10%, right? Okay, one in 10. That, that seems reasonable. Fast forward to 1992, that same research institute redid their study, and they found that that percentage had shifted to 80% would now identify as very important people. Okay, that's just not statistically possible, all right? Fast forward another 30 years, and guess where we're at today? About 95%. Of, the, of, our, of our great Americans think of themselves as important people, okay? So DeGroote and others caution that this proliferation of narcissism is seeping into the church. It's finding its way into the church. Now let's talk about what exactly narcissism is. So a definition of narcissism is that it's an excessive, um, excessive interest or admiration of oneself, okay? That's the textbook definition. We could add to that, narcissism is always a destructive behavior or pattern. It's either destructive to us or, or most often destructive to the people around us. Now what was interesting to me is I often thought of narcissism as self-love, but, but it's not really so much as self-love as it's rooted in a need for self-protection. You see, DeGroote suggests that narcissism usually originates from a deep wound, whether that's shame or failure, or trauma, narcissism serves as kind of like an armory, an armor that, that protects us uh, as a self-defense mechanism, a sinful self-defense mechanism. And DeGroote likens it to armor that protects the fragile self and at the same time harms others. Now there's a real danger in narcissism, and I can't remember who said this first, I couldn't find it on the internet, but the real danger of narcissism goes like this, it says that narcissism is dangerous because it's kind of like having bad breath. When you've got it, everyone knows you got it, except for you. And I would add to it, there's also a tendency to think that everyone else has it, but I don't. Okay, so the question then is, how do we identify narcissism in our lives? Well, I'm going to look at three indicators from Scripture this morning. Three indicators. And the first is this. We manage our image. We have an obsession with managing our image. A prime example of this comes from our Daniel reading with Nebuch King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, this is a guy who embodied this character trait. Not only was he completely arrogant, but listen to how he sounds. He's, he's, he's just making it all about him. He looks out at the grandeur of his palace. He, he stands and goes, look at all I've accomplished. Look at my success. Look what I've built. I mean, this was a guy who built a 90-foot-tall golden statues, statue that as the sound would, uh, the trumpet would play, he expected everyone to bow down and worship the image of him. This was a guy who archaeologists have discovered ruins that were built around the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Do you know what they discovered on every single brick? Thousands and thousands and thousands of bricks. Nebuchadnezzar's name printed right on each and every single one. Why? Because he was obsessed with his image. Look at all that I own. Look at all that I've accomplished. Look at my success. Look at my power. Don't you wish you had my life? Sound a little familiar? 
I mean, we might not have every two-by-four and brick stamp with our name on. At least I hope you don't. But this obsession with image has become a real problem in our culture and even in our church. Makes me think back to a few months ago when Jamie and I watched a, a documentary on Hillsong Church, New York. I don't know if you know anything about Hillsong Church, New York, but at one point it was one of the fastest growing churches in America. And what's interesting is that the documentary credits the boom of this church with the simultaneous boom of Instagram. You see, two weeks before this church launch, Instagram launched, and the pastor, Carl Lentz, took hold of this. He became a person who really knew how to sell an image. And often that image was of Carl Lentz. And he's not a bad-looking guy or anything, but, but he, he was a church that became interested in selling an image rather than sharing the gospel. Well, it's no surprise that narcissism eventually infected the leadership and led to Carl Lentz's downfall. Now, to be fair and to his credit, in the documentary, he owns this. He, he repents. And, and uh, to be honest, I don't know if that's a genuine repentance. I, don't, I didn't follow up. But the point is, this obsession with imagery is very much alive in the church. And just so you don't think I'm throwing stones at somebody else, i got to be honest, I struggle with this too. Okay, so this past week, someone posted a, a picture of me with another group of guys on, on social media. Do you know what the first thing I did was? I zoomed in on myself. Okay? Who else does that? Come on, let's be honest. Who else? For everyone else who's not raising your hand, next week we're going to look at lying, okay? We all zoom in. How do I look? And it wasn't like, oh, look at me. Look how good I look. I, I was like beating myself up. I was thinking, oh, look at this. I look flabby. My, my, Rachel is right. I am getting wrinkles. But that's still an obsession with my image. It was narcissistic of me. The point is, we all care about our image way more than we'd like to admit. And it's not just a social media thing. If you're easily embarrassed, that's probably stemming from narcissism. If you're very self-conscious, that's probably stemming from narcissism. Because narcissism is concerned with the image, with the reputation, with how others perceive us. That's the first indicator. Number two. Narcissism demands recognition. In our gospel lesson, Jesus has a great illustration, an example of this. He tells us to imagine there's a wedding reception, and for some reason, uh, there's no assigned seating. It's open seating. What's the narcissist going to do? He's always going to assume to go to the place of honor, of privilege. Why? Because narcissism demands recognition. So here's a little diagnostic test for ourselves. See if this is bellowing up in us. Ask yourself this question, when, when people don't honor me or give me the recognition that I feel I deserve, what does that do to me? What does that do to my heart? How do I feel? Maybe um, you do a good deed. And maybe it's at church. Maybe you do a good thing for church, but no one recognizes your good deed. Not that it wasn't appreciated, but it just didn't get the recognition. How do you feel? What does that do to you? When I was first ordained a priest, we, I was put in charge of a, a pretty big vacation Bible school. There's lots of volunteers, but I wanted to thank the, the key leaders of that vacation Bible school. And so Sunday morning came, we had all the kids do a song, and right before I get up to give a big thank you, one of the older priests, a guy named Father Jim, um, pulled me aside and he goes, don't thank the volunteers. You can thank them in general. He's this Louisiana guy. Uh, but don't thank the volunteers. And I go, what? He goes, you don't want to name them. Because if you forget a name, or if your list stops short, 
you're going to hurt feelings. People are going to get upset. Why? Because they demand recognition. That's narcissism. And it's not just the church. It could be at work. Maybe a coworker does something that you do all the time, but they receive recognition. How does that make you feel? Or maybe there's a, a, a Christian conference in the area, and certain pastors are, are, are honored to speak at this conference, but they don't ask Father Chase. What does that make you feel? I know it makes me feel outraged. I'm, I'm from Northern Europe. Like, that's my descendants. I'm passive-aggressive. I just sulk privately in my office, and I pout. Still narcissism. All right, if we got narcissism, one of the big indicators is going to be that we're going to have some vitriol reaction when one of these kinds of situations occur because narcissism demands recognition. Last one, third indicator. Narcissism hates correction. We're going to hate correction. We have a great example of this in John 9. We didn't read John 9, but this is where Jesus heals a man who was born blind since, or was born blind, and he heals him. And at this point in Jesus' life, the Pharisees are looking for ways to trap Jesus, to get him, uh, uh, you know, kind of trip him up. And so they go to interrogate this healed man, and they're really like laying into him really hard. And so at one point, the guy just kind of breaks down. He goes, listen, I don't know about this Jesus, but I do know one thing. If, if he wasn't someone sent by God, then he would not have been able to do this. And the Pharisees just suddenly drop the Jesus thing, and they look at this guy, and they are livid. They're like, hey, Baba, you are nothing but dirt to us, okay? Don't you take that tone with us. We are the religious leaders. You don't talk to us that way. We teach you about God. They were deeply offended. Why? Because narcissism hates criticism. So how do we respond when someone corrects us? How do we respond when somebody suggests a way that we could do something a little bit better? You know, again, I have to admit, I'm not always the best at this. A while back, and this was a long time ago, not in this congregation, okay? <laughs> I preached a sermon, and after the service, I'm shaking hands, and things seem to be, people responded well, I'm getting accolades, I'm feeling good. But then one guy comes up to me, and he, things are cordial at first, but he then proceeds to tell me how there are some things in my sermon that were incorrect. Not like I mispronounced a word, which happens all the time, or got a little detail wrong. That, 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 that always happens. No, this was the very heart of the sermon. I was wrong. So what did I do? I went fair sake on him. I said, listen here, Bubba, you're nothing but dirt to me. No. <laughs> I'm, Northern, I'm from Northern Europe. No, no, I'm passive-aggressive, okay? So I, I, I just I dismissed him. I just completely like, withdrew from the conversation, and I think he could tell. And he was, just, he was miffed that I just wasn't willing to receive that. And as I left church that day, I, I, I walked out feeling wounded, feeling a bit self-righteous. Like, who's this guy talking to me? You know what that was? That was narcissism, because it didn't like the criticism. Narcissism hates criticism. And a reason why it refuses to listen to criticism, because remember, at its root, it's not about self-love, it's about self-protection. And criticism often feels like an attack. So those are three indicators. There are a lot more, and I wish we could talk about how it, it, it causes us to, to become envious and jealous, how it clashes with others, how it always wants to encourage us to play the victim. But I want to get to one final question. And that, and that is, what do we do if we're sitting here today and we're going, ooh, that sounds like me. What do we do if we think over the last year, maybe we've kind of moved up that scale and put on a couple pieces of the narcissism on our armor? What are some practical steps? Well, that's where what we read in Philippians comes in. 
Paul wrote Philippians, and he was speaking to a church that was starting to experience some anxiety and tension, and he knew that that was one of the indicators that narcissism was seeping into the church. And so in this letter, he gives two practical ways which we can deal with narcissism. First, he says, it's got to start with our unity in Jesus. For Paul, denarsifying ourselves, and that's I made that up, okay, getting rid of narcissism starts by being united in Christ. So if you've noticed you've been putting on this armor, Paul says, lean into your relationship with Jesus. Lay it before him. Offer it to him in your prayers. Say, God, I don't like my obsession with my image. I don't like that I feel that I need all this recognition. I don't like that I can't stand criticism. Lay that before him daily, daily. And this really makes sense. It has to start with Jesus. Because if we think about it, we are not capable of getting rid of sin on our own. We're just not really good at that. We need Jesus. We need to be empowered by his Holy Spirit. We need his grace to do for us what we can't do on our own. And, the, and, and to add to that, if DeGroote is right and narcissism stems from a deep wound, a deep emotional and spiritual wound, then we need the great physician of our soul to come in and heal and mend us. So first, lean into Christ. Second, he says then, Model your life and your attitude. Imitate Jesus' own life and attitude, which was a life that constantly sought to put the others, other people's needs and interests before his own. His life was a life that did nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility considered others first. But again, I have to say, we can't even begin this, this practice of modeling or imitating Jesus without having first a relationship with Jesus, Okay. So second, he says, imitate Jesus, imitate his humility, imitate his attitude of others before me. Now, do you notice what both those things have in common? The focus is brought externally. The focus is made externally. Mother Bree loves to talk about St. Augustine's famous line, homo incurvatus inse. Right? If you're going through Via, you know homo incurvatus inse. And I want to steal this in the sermon series before she says it, so let her know. <laughs> what that means is sin always results in man being curved in on himself. All sin, especially narcissism, causes us to curve in, look inwardly, protect ourselves. Well, Paul's spiritual exercises raises up that posture. It corrects our posture. It's exactly what we read happened to Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar, he was curved in on himself. He literally became an animal, a beast. But then when his eyes were lifted back up to heaven, when his posture was made correct, he, he was restored. Paul's restoring our posture. He's putting our focus externally so we can once again focus on God, focus on others, and focus on God's calling on our life. So to wrap things up, the bad news is we're all narcissists. It's not just a Don Draper thing. It's a human thing. All of us fall on the scale at some point. But the good news is there's a cure, and that cure has a name, Jesus. And he doesn't simply want to fix actions and behaviors to make us good little boys and girls. No, he wants to heal the wounds that have caused us to put on this armor. And so as we embark on this journey through Lent in this series, this isn't about fixing external actions and behaviors. It's about letting grace heal the heart. It's about becoming more like Jesus. It's about recognizing that our, 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 our worth doesn't come from achievements or image or recognition, but the very fact that we are all children of God. So friends, this journey isn't about becoming less of ourselves. 
It's about becoming more of who we already are in Christ. And so what we're going to find is we're not so much rejecting narcissism as we're embracing the fullness of life that God has for us. Let's embrace that fullness together. Amen.